Hey everyone, welcome to Wedget Show, the show where I interview people who are reshaping what it means to live well in the 21st century. We talk the creator economy, learning and building in public, and how we can hack our way out of our most pressing issues. Enjoy. Hi, Daniel. Thanks so much for joining me. This is a call I had circled on my calendar for quite a long time, <laughs> just because I, I was looking forward to talking to you about all the things that I just mentioned to you from identity and how we can structure lives around what we care about. And so the first thing that we talked about, which you said, but I have no doubt you'll say it just as lucidly and, and even more clearly this time is that you left the, the most striking part about your story, right? If we were making a, a headline for this and I wanted to grab the attention of as many people as possible, I would just basically focus solely on the fact that you left Amazon. And myself as a CS major at Georgia Tech, I can't tell you how many people want to get into and go work at <laughs> Amazon and, and you yeah. left. So that's a very puzzling thing. <laughs> At yeah, least to those people. Yeah, and it was for a while, it was my dream job as well. Like when I joined, I really wanted to, to get into big tech, whether it was Amazon or Google or Microsoft or one of those big companies. Basically, I'm 37 years old now. Back 10 years ago, I had worked into a couple of small companies. I was a software developer, but I started feeling the need to look into how the sausage is made in some of these big places like what they're doing they're building technology that i could use but i had no idea how it was built so i felt like i was missing something and uh, long story short i managed to get in at amazon i i, I really enjoyed especially the first couple of years i was learning a lot as i expected i seeing lots of different ways of doing software that i was never exposed to but then very quickly, I think after those initial two years, things started to change. I started to plateau how much new things I was seeing. I couldn't, it was hard to imagine even moving teams, but you always learn something, right? but there's a diminishing returns very quickly. Mm-hmm. The, the funny thing is that by pretty much every other traditional metric, I was succeeding in that career. I was getting compensated way beyond my wildest dreams. For a while, my, my paycheck was almost doubling every year. That it was increasing phenomenally. I, I was I started I joined Amazon in Ireland, and then a year and a half later, I was asked to move to the US, which was also a nice thing. I got promoted a couple of times, so everything was running really well. Like I fell into the trap a little bit where I felt like this is probably my career path, even though it's not as exciting as as I imagined. It was very hard to imagine another part. I was imagining, I was calculating everything from a financial perspective back then. Uh, so sort of the expected value, sort of the probability times the payoff <laughs> of staying there seemed so much right. higher than anything else I could do. Even if I, were to, even if I were to take a bet with starting another company myself, right? when you factor in the odds of success, it's just, and how much probably time you have to wait until you get even the payoff. <laughs> That's so all yeah. I was thinking just in those financial terms initially. So I, I fell into that trap where I think for, for probably three or four years, my motivation was low, but I just kept going because I was seeing people around me who were, it felt like almost a sure bet that if I stick, stuck around for another 10 years, 
I would be earning lots of money. It was almost guaranteed. And eventually I would just retire <laughs> from big tech. And this is the story that many people lived around me. Right? It's very common to see people retire in their late 40s. Uh, most of the time they make a few million dollars practically. Right? It's, sort of, it's, it's fascinating. Something about five years ago clicked in me and I realized that <laughs> sort of it's, it's a bit foolish to, to expect that my lifestyle is going to improve just by making more money or getting promoted more, especially when I was looking back and I realized that it wasn't really improving much. <laughs> Probably it was getting worse, <laughs> actually. Right? So it would have been very delusional to believe that it would suddenly change with yet another bonus or yet another promotion or something like that. So that's the, the first part. So I then sort of I moved to the other chapter in my life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I The first ever interview I had, again, someone I was really excited about was with Steph Smith. And she talked about oh, the yeah, same thing. Yeah. Yeah. She's awesome. I was super excited to talk to her. And, and it was the same thing where she said she was a consultant at TopTel. And then she left to go learn how to code. And that's a very... Uh, puzzling idea, right? I, I read Stoic philosophy. So Seneca talks about, right, that the Stoic mindset is to have the self-control to not be afraid of what most people fear, but also to not leap after what most people want. And I just said that just because your yeah. your whole story stood out to me in that way and that you were getting paid a lot of money, but you, you the, the, right, in terms of optimizing your life from a financial perspective, I'm, I'm sure you were doing unbelievably well. You've been very transparent with how much money you made over your time at Amazon. And so I was looking at it in preparation for this interview. And, and so you see it grows very quickly. And yeah. I, I guess that's probably very exciting. But I think the thing that she realized and you've realized and I'm thinking about is that there's a different way to optimize our, our life, which is around how much time that we have. And, yeah. and so... Yeah, the, the idea that Steph Smith had that sort of complemented your idea. I'll let you jump in in a second. But yeah, her idea was just that a lot of people think of it as some sort of hill, that they're climbing some hill. And then if they go to start working on something new, that they'll fall off the hill that they've done all this work to climb up. And in your case, mm -hmm. they're doing fabulously well being in Ireland and then moving to the US. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I think I'm glad you mentioned the Stark philosophy. It's inspired me a lot. And I like some of the stoic teachings and how to reason about living a good life and taking risks or, or not being affected by downsides and things like that. And it's, I think, something that many people fall, fall into is sort of this part right, that typically starts in childhood where you sort of, there's like this series of steps that you almost should follow, right? You study, you go to college, you find a job and you keep sort of climbing the ladder you retire and that's it, right? And this is like the default part, right? And I was on it as well for a while. <clears throat> but I think what, what I invite many people to do, right, is, uh, this is something that I talk about a lot, is to, to pause and reconsider, right? And, one, and I'll admit, right, it's, it's quite challenging and quite hard to write off a chapter and pretty much give up on what you've worked, on, worked hard for a long time. Right, and just take something completely different. But there's this saying from somebody I follow who I, I like a lot, is if you're in, on the wrong train, every stop will be the wrong stop. Right? And that's what I realized. I was on the wrong train, and no matter how much I kept going, 
that it was always going to never going to lead yeah. me to where I wanted to go. So basically, I think it's easy to fall into the sunk cost fallacy. That right? is just you realize that you've spent so much. Many people spend like 10 years, 20 years invested in their career, like just believing that they're going to be seeing compounding returns eventually. To write it off, I think it's something that, that the Stoics teach a lot, right? It's just realizing what's really important in life and just being able to write off something and just, it's like Seneca used to say, start journeys with nothing, right? And just give away everything or whatever he was doing. <laughs> and I think it's something that, I felt helped me into taking the plunge that I think makes many people think twice, right? And sometimes never end up doing it. This is for me, my chapter in big tech was over. I lived it. I got something out of it. Never planning to go back. You can never say never, who knows, but it's definitely not my intention. It's not even my plan B or whatever. To me, I've, that's over, right? It's, it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's not something that I'm arranging my life in such a way that will be affected again so it makes it easy to i think it made it easier for me to just reason about it that way and it was part as well with not thinking about it financially once you start not measuring your life in financial terms it's just easier to think that yeah i could have made much more money if i stayed there but what's the point <laughs> right i mean once once i started becoming convinced that it's not going to be helping me sort of create a better lifestyle easier to convince yourself <laughs> right yeah and i i totally love that idea if you're on the wrong train every stop is the wrong stop because that's how you manage to get out of it that's how you took the leap to start something new it's just you get off on the wrong stop and then you find the right train exactly <laughs> and uh, you've left amazon so you've started pursuing this uh, the word that comes to mind is divergent a, a novel maybe this sort of new life path right the the way that you've even made money and you've been extremely successful with how to make, how to grow a Twitter audience and best parts mm -hmm. of AWS. It's something that wasn't really possible 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago. And so I'm just interested. It was these two ideas that I was mentioning to you earlier, which are, and I'm sure you'll talk about it as well, right? After you took a step back from Amazon, you were able to notice how your motivation was going down. And you mentioned this law of diminishing returns. But the two things that I mentioned to you before that we were thinking about in terms of how do we keep this motivation up are competition and making mistakes. And so you're in a situation now where you, you don't have a job, right? You're this new sort of thing called an indie hacker where you're selling directly mm -hmm. to people which is uh, also really cool and really interesting. And, and so I'm just interested, would, your lifestyle has changed enormously. I'm, I'm wondering, it's very difficult, I know at any point in your life to be like, yes, I'm 100% satisfied, this is great. But I'm, I'm just wondering, you seem like someone who reflects often about these sort of things. So how has your perspective shifted about your lifestyle now than while you were at big tech? But also, what is it like living a lifestyle around a variable income and those sorts of things? Yeah. So I have to admit, right, when I left, I didn't really have a very clear plan of how, how I was going to execute everything. And, and in fact, my sort of my vague plan was that I had a few ideas and I had arranged them in series. Like I had plan A, plan B, plan C. Building a software as a service was my plan A that what turned out to be user base. 
I had other ideas like doing some freelancing or consulting, um, but they were all, always, if this doesn't work, I'll try this and then I'll try this and I'll try this. <clears throat> and um, so this was a bit more traditional, I think, uh, way of taking the leap from full-time employment to self-employment. That you start before you were 100% focused uh, at your whatever your employer was doing, and then you become 100% focused on some idea that you have. But I think something that I learned uh, very quickly that even though I had a very healthy amount of savings done away, I had saved almost five and a half years worth of expenses. Right? So I was quite comfortable from that aspect in terms of having enough time to figure something out. Despite that, it was still becoming very hard psychologically right, to just see losses accumulating month after month and the uncertainty of not knowing when things are going, when you're going to get a signal whether something is working or not working. Right? And that was really like, stressful subconsciously. Right? It's something that literally was keeping me up at night. Basically, it's not, it's many times it's not clear whether you should give up on this idea or move to the next one because, okay, you might be getting some good signals from, from some aspects. Maybe you should wait out more or maybe you should invest more or maybe you should make some tweaks, right? I mean, when is it the right time? So I had uh, about six months in, I had again like this small crisis which made me reevaluate my strategy a little bit, right? And basically I realized instead of doing things in series, why, do I, why don't I just try to do Lots of things in parallel, <laughs> basically. To be honest, I think what I really needed to happen at the time was I needed to find something with a fast feedback loop. Uh, basically, the SaaS business was something that we're working on today, and especially the type of business I was doing, had an extremely long feedback loop. From the time you get uh, somebody to see it until they become a paid customer, it could take months or years, and it's very hard to know whether you're on the right track or whether you need to tweak. So there's lots of uncertainty about it. So I started thinking about what I could do. That basically, I went looking for the low-hanging fruit, pretty much. That is how I thought about it. What do I have in me that uh, I could do very quickly with the minimum effort possible to try to make some money? It didn't need to be a significant amount of money. It just I didn't think I wanted to hone my skills, but some confidence. That's how I thought about it initially, to try to make, uh, to make some income on myself. And I did two things. First, first one, very quickly, I started doing some freelancing consulting. I happened to have a friend of mine who had a startup here in Seattle, needed some help. It was a very small amount of hours, about 10 hours a month. But it was nice to finally get some income, even though it wasn't even covering my full sort of ex monthly expenses, but it was still good. Basically, I realized there was a significant dis difference between believing that you could fall back to something if you wanted to versus you're already executing the fallback. It's already there, right? It's just subconsciously right. for your peace of mind, it's like a night and day difference, right? It just tames uncertainty significantly. And then the second thing I tried was uh, to create this ebook about Amazon Web Services, which is a topic that I knew a lot about. I worked at AWS for eight years and I used it before. And the inspiration started, basically, I had started to build a little bit of a Twitter audience. I had started tweeting back then mostly about programming topics because I was building user base. Pretty much I was doing programming stuff most of my days. And I used to share my perspective, what I was learning and things like that. 
And I used to notice quite a good amount of engagement with people asking questions about AWS. They were interested in my perspective. Nevertheless, I had absolutely no idea whether this made it like a viable commercial opportunity. But I realized, what if I take, make a small bet? I time box my effort to a month. I said to do a brain dump of everything I know. <laughs> Whatever doesn't fit in that month, I'll just cut it out and just try to sell it. So it was uh, sort of, that's, that's the approach I took. And in fact, to risk it even further, I had another friend of mine happened to also leave Amazon. He used to be working with my team as well. Similar story, roughly. He wanted to take a break from full-time employment. And actually, I invited him to join me. So actually, we called out this first product together. It was like we ended up spending like two weeks, pretty much each, in parallel. <laughs> and very quickly, we ended up with this 170-page book, right, which was we didn't spend too much time the searching or doing other tedious stuff. It was just everything we knew. We did some light editing, saved as PDF, uploaded to Gumroad, and that's it, right? And <laughs> this, this sort of to 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 sort of jump to the result, this turned out to be uh, ex- extremely well, right? This this book made over hundred thousand dollars. I think it's about hundred and fifteen thousand in less than a year and about eleven months. It opened my eyes not only to the viability of doing things like these that you could actually make a living out of these types of info products i call them but it also opened my eyes that actually i really enjoyed this like this is something i didn't know about myself it was definitely not my priority a b or c when i started it was something somewhere in the list that i might do something like this but by trying different things i realized that I enjoy creating these, I enjoy marketing them, I enjoy talking about them like I'm doing now. <laughs> but I, I sort of, so much so that I end up taking a sort of a quarter time role with Gumroad very recently. Maybe we can talk more about that. <laughs> but I even enjoyed sort of one of the leading platforms as part of their team to help them with product development. It's a discovery of preferences as well, right? which I think is something that is very important with, with the philosophy of how I'm approaching things. Right, you you start trying to build my lifestyle around my preferences and around what gives me motivation and what I like and that doesn't include things that I dislike, and sometimes this is a continuous process. We're learning as we go, and probably preferences change as well as we go through life. Right, and as things things change, you, you start a family. Things uh, change very easily. Like this idea of, of building a portfolio of small bets. I think it's a little bit of a twist to the typical indie hacker sort of story, right? Where you start with, a, with an idea and you try to make it sustainable very quickly, but you focus just on that idea. Whereas I, most, I pretty much started with my ideal lifestyle <laughs> and I tried to figure out many different things that try to enhance my lifestyle. And then for products fit perfectly with it. Again, as I said, I, they're, they're something that I that I don't need to spend lots of time creating. I enjoy all the process around them. They don't take much time. It gives me lots of freedom. But you know, they're, they're not perfect. Obviously, like they're not like the current revenue business, right? So they have the typical curve where you have a big spike when you launch and then they diminish. So either you need to create something else, and I don't know how many <laughs> info product ideas I have in me, right? So. I think it's still important for me like, to keep the portfolio idea where I'm still pretty much I spend most of my days nowadays um, just 
wandering about, I call it. Like just trying to find inspiration, to assess opportunities, and I'm not really productive. <laughs> I'm not writing code or building something or whatever for, I think, for probably 80, 90% of my time in every month. <laughs> right? I'm just waiting for inspiration opportunity to meet. And then sometimes when I feel there's that combination, I might test something. Sometimes I might start working on something, but I give up on it. Sometimes I realize that maybe the opportunity is not that uh, good as I thought, or sometimes I launch something, right? I test it more and let it uh, get out and see how it goes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Yeah, motivation is, is something very... Motivation gets a bit of a bad reputation because of the discourse around especially self-employment, but I, I, I disagree that, at least from my perspective, I think we're definitely intrinsically motivated about certain things. Light, lighting code, for example, is something that I've been doing since I was you know, 10 years old, when, and I was doing, for, doing it for the sake of it. Nobody was asking me to do it. Nobody was watching or giving me grades or whatever. It was just my parents thought I was playing games and I was just trying to build a game, <laughs> right? And I think it's very important right? to, to start, start to discover what are these things that, that give us free energy to do them, that we don't need to be chasing a carrot or being threatened with a stick to do something. Because it's really, I think it's really fulfilling when your life is mostly you're doing things that you naturally feel like doing, right? And that's the type of arrangement that I'm trying to create by discovering those things and by trying to find uh, viable ways to make a living <laughs> out of doing those things. You, you mentioned something that I've heard Cortland Allen echo when I, I got a chance to hop on a call with him. Mm -hmm. and, and so he said, the new viable way is that you find the lifestyle that you want and you build a business around it. I'm interested. I, I don't want to get too personal, but I'm just interested. You you had a certain lifestyle at Amazon, right? You mentioned that you were working weekends. It, it's this very obsessive. I know I'm sure Amazon has a sort of unique hacker culture, but I think you would find this whole idea of spending all the majority of your time working is not something that's consolidated to Amazon. It's probably a feature yeah. at a lot of big tech companies. I'm just interested, what were the what were the things that you tried to organize your life for? You left Amazon and then you were pursuing this yeah. you know, lifestyle that you enjoyed much better. And I'm just wondering what sort of considerations went into constructing this new lifestyle that you could then build these small bets around. And that's sort of yeah. also an idea I want to uh, cover. Yeah, absolutely. I think, so to be fair, right, actually, especially in my latter years at Amazon, I wasn't necessarily overworking or mm -hmm. uh, doing lots of nights and weekends. It was a little bit in the beginning, but I think in my last probably half part, I think the biggest problem at Amazon was that no matter how much I grew up the ranks, I was always going to be working on somebody else's terms, right? And pretty much my 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 day-to-day -day job ended up being a series of meetings. Many of them, I felt like they were purposeless or meaningless. I had no control, but I had to do them because there was some process that I had to follow, right? And I used to go to sleep, check my calendar. I see at nine, I have this, and at 11, I have that. And it's just, it was not something that I could control. Neither the location where I was, neither how I spent my time, not, neither what I chose to work on at least in, gen in, in high-level aspects. So that's definitely something that I wanted to change. And that's, I think, that's the biggest leap in, 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 dif in difference is that 
we still do sometimes boring work when you're self-employed you still end up having to do to deal with accounts and bookkeeping and taxes and other stuff that's not necessarily interesting but at least that you're not doing anything purposeless and meaningless but if it's something that i feel like it has no value i just don't do it i don't need to do unnecessary meetings or write unnecessary reports or do things like that and uh, this is something that also pushed me away from starting the, t- the typical venture capital bagged silicon valley type startup right i had absolutely no desire at all to go that route where i would end up with even more structure and answering to many other people i think the idea that i wake up in the morning with absolutely zero agenda, right? I check my emails to see if there's anything urgent. If there isn't, pretty much I spend my time, depending on what happens to be, if it's a nice day and the kids are home, we might just go out and do something outside, not work-related. If there's nothing better to do, I might go online and see what people are asking and answer a few Twitter questions. Sometimes I bump into something interesting and I start exploring it in my head. That is just this sort of very unstructured, almost opportunistic in a good sense right way of living life life which is which is one that embraces randomness so randomness is typically in in our culture seen as something you should eliminate squeeze out completely smooth out and just make everything predictable <laughs> but actually i'm realizing one of the most exciting things about life is that we end up having these pleasant surprises right is that like i released my first product christmas day of last year like mm-hmm. if, we, if we were talking a year or a year and a half ago, I had absolutely no clue that I was going to be writing, writing an ebook and making uh, six figures out of it, or I'd be doing another info product on social media, which was something I had completely, absolutely no experience with <laughs> back then. But it's this idea of going to, jer- to your journey like a free-form adventure, right, where you're just bumping with things, evaluating them on the go, and uh, you're not evaluating things necessarily by, at least exclusively by financial terms. Obviously, the financial side is important because you still, when you're assessing opportunities and you have to try to make a living out of them, the financial aspect matters. But it's not, it's not an approach where you're trying to maximize income, right? I feel actually that I'm leaving money on the table in lots of different places just because it's not something that I... Just because there are things that might get me into an, an obligation that I feel like I don't want to to get into, right? Or things that are just would restrict me too much. It's I think once you start having this perspective on on life and work, you start seeing options that you would have been completely blind to. Right? That's my realization <laughs> is that when you just see everything as you just think to maximize income very quickly all the options start to narrow to just one part and people and even i used to just go with it whereas if you start seeing life as very multi-dimensional right there's lots of different things you could be doing you're not necessarily trying to maximize status income your level in society or job titles any of those things right it's just it's harder to reason about right basically if you were to ask me what do you imagine yourself doing next year or in two years it's very hard for me to know and I, I admit that there's a little bit of slight discomfort in that, but I think I got, I learned how to deal with it. So I don't sort of not, I don't feel anxious at all. I don't actually feel like I'll figure it out. And, and it's just fending for yourself 
gives you some level of security in a weird way. Yeah. <laughs> right? Basically, it's like a muscle, right? the muscle of whatever happens, I managed to figure out something. Right? And that's something I think you lose. I felt like I lost when I was like a full-time employee in the corporate world because you tend to live in this sort of this very rigid structure where you know exactly what you need to do when you're doing a good job or not a good job. Whereas uh, now it's much more broad as what the definition of success is, if there is one. <laughs> I, I, I was about to say the same thing to you. I, I said, I think it's a muscle that you've recultivated because I, I think about that too. Obviously, you could go into our culture and say, we ask children at a very early age, what do you want to be when you grow up? And that's just meant to get a cute response. But there is this idea that you should know where, where your future is going. And so I think unteaching yourself that idea revolves involves the generation of this new muscle. And I'm also very envious that, that you figured out how to fend for yourself because that's just a very nervous idea yeah. for me. <laughs> it's but, hard, yeah, I'll admit. Right? It's something that I, I don't know what the answer is. I think it's one of those things that you have to live and it's something that you build confidence gradually. It's what I call figuring out how to tame uncertainty and you build the uh, sort of necessary techniques right, to make sure that the most the most important things are secure because that's what you need to do is you need to protect your downside. Basically, um, when, when I try to explain, people sometimes tell me, they tell me that they're not as they're much more risk averse than I am. But actually, I feel like I'm quite risk averse. In fact, I try to do things that I'm not trying to do things with with large upsides or very speculative. Actually, probably I'm just going for the low hanging fruit, doing the minimum necessary to make sure that I don't have to go back to my previous lifestyle. I'm pretty much just looking back at almost very conservative approach. I just want to stay where I am. Yeah, <laughs> not not very ambitious. Right. Actually, but the funny story I, I mentioned to you that I had an interview with someone else and they mentioned uh, you to me. And so the person I was talking to, he, he calls himself a video entrepreneur. So he's an indie hacker as well. And he runs this business where he creates video for his clients. Anyway, yeah. I talked to him and he said, I bought Daniel Vasallo's How to Grow Your Twitter Audience course. And it's literally him, a loom video of him reading some slides. And he goes, I realized I've been overthinking this video thing my entire life. Yeah. <laughs> and it was so funny because it's someone who just makes videos for a living. And he makes amazing videos. And he goes, this guy made more than $100,000. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I got the same inspiration to it, it from someone else. Like I, funny story. I was once scrolling on Twitter and a tweet showed up on my feed from somebody I don't even follow. I think somebody retweeted it of a woman who did a video course about the business of buying the returned products from the big box shops like Best Buy and Amazon and Walmart and they're selling them over eBay. And basically I got curious. It was 25 bucks. Like I was curious. I felt like let me see. <laughs> it's not something that I was imagining of doing myself, but I was curious how you could make a living out of this activity. And I was fascinated that this, this course was literally her, pretty much went to one of these warehouses with her iPhone, just recorded herself like with selfie mode and just showing how she was picking the pellets and loading them in her car. And then she went home on her computer, shared her desktop and showed how she put them on eBay, chose her place, literally almost... Uh, it was just two two cuts, basically the one in the warehouse and the one on her computer. And it was eye-opening again. Wow, this was, it felt like 
very genuine, very uh, unpolished, but still I felt like I got lots of information in a very short amount of time. Like the information density was extremely high. And um, it inspired me. Right? And in fact, that's sort of, I wanted to take that approach as well with my video cars. I didn't want to overthink it. Something that I did pretty much in three days. Like I spent a day working on the slides, not even a full day, just a few hours. Another day recording, again, like just a few hours, and then finished up my product the next day, mm-hmm. and I put it on the market. And I basically, I, I found it became a very ruthless executor of the 80-20 rule, where you just look for the 20% of the effort to try to find the 80% of the results. Right? And this is, I think, important for cultivating a portfolio of small bets. Right? You can't really just dedicate 100% and obsess about everything right? and every detail. I still feel like sometimes I focus on some details, but I do them for their own sake, not necessarily because I do them just because I enjoy doing them. For example, may- maybe I do another info product. I'm this time, especially since, since now I have more confidence in how things will work, I might focus more on polishing things, but just for my own <laughs> amusement, more than just deluding myself that they are going to sell more uh, or significantly more. Right, just because of finding the right cover or the right <laughs> uh, things like that. Yeah, it's um, it's this this beautiful I- idea that sort of reminded me of right. If you go to Paul Graham's website or, or stuff like that, it's just the content. It's just straight to yeah, the it's just text. It it doesn't even have an SSL certificate. Get a big warning that it's like unsecure. <laughs> it's I like it. I like it. I think there's a few other creators like. Peter Levels of Nomad List, do you know him by any chance? He's like very radical as well. And yeah. there's a few other creators I follow where I, I like this approach. I think it's, at least I like this approach, at least when you're starting out. I think when you're starting to build something more sustainable, you can start obviously uh, taking more ambitious risks and not necessarily being so ruthless with the 8 to 20 rule, right? because you have a, a solid foundation. But I think initially, especially to deal with the, all the uncertainty, right? I think this is a very important technique, right? Which really helps with sort of figuring out what works, what doesn't work, right? Because that, I think that's, that's what you need to do. There's no, no right formula of what should I do, right? Basically, it's very hard to predict what will work. I think probably the best thing to do is to try many things, <laughs> keep what works, and throw away the rest. That's ultimately... If there's a formula, that is it. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I've been trying to do for myself and that these conversations help me do, and I think you helped me do, is just formulate this definition of what it means to live freely and, and to live independently. Yeah. And, and I think if I were to posit a definition just based off our conversation right now, it sounds like that really means that the only demands on your time are the ones that come from yourself. Would you agree? Or Yeah, I think I'm... I believe that you can almost never be 100% free and 100% consoling over everything. There's always uh, there's always going to be some things. But I think you can basically increase the amount of freedom you have. Uh, and I think that's how the, the degrees of freedom on basically how I choose to spend my time, where I choose to spend it. And, and as well, something that I care a lot about in the sort of the consistency of how I spend it. Basically, I, f- I, I found this is something that's very controversial, actually, when I speak about it. Like, I'm, a, I'm an intensity over consistency kind of person. I'm not the kind of person that I like to spread something out 
doing one hour of the day and after a year you finish something. I decided to just focus for a week and just just focus on it. And that's it. That I just dedicate all my energy, all my attention, and then shift to something else or just go back to wondering about. But I prefer sort of those intense spikes rather than dragging something around. And I think that's another sort of type of freedom that I enjoy having that I didn't used to have, for example, in full-time employment. Yeah, I think freedom is something that, for example, starting a family, having kids, obviously allowed some of your freedom. Now you have dependents and you have to do something, but it's not something that I wouldn't want to go back now exactly, that I have yeah. two kids. So yeah. I think it's important to... To, I think what's important is to, as much as possible, be in control of what freedoms you choose to go after and what obligations you choose to enter. That's something, again, that was very different from uh, full-time employment, right? Choosing what to enter, what to pursue, and what to not pursue wasn't, most of the time, my, my decision, right? It was somebody above me and person above them and so on and so forth. Whereas now it's my decision, right? Now, now I see something. Sometimes I start to wonder, for example, other info products, opportunities like creating a paid newsletter. I think the opportunity is there. But then I start wondering, do I really want to enter the obligation of having to post a newsletter every week or every month right? just because I have paying members and I implicitly feel they're paying for something coming out at a certain cadence. And then I start wondering, maybe I shouldn't get into that. So, you know, probably I'm leaving money on the table. Probably it's a good opportunity. But it's that pause makes me think that maybe I should say something else. And it's not completely out of the question. Maybe at some occasion I think about it again. Maybe I st- eventually I figure out a way such that the obligation doesn't feel that burdensome. Mm. <laughs> but right now it still feels too burdensome. Right? I'm sort of uh, almost afraid to get into it because it's, it feels like it's not the right ratio of opportunity and <laughs> obligation. Right. Another, to give another example the agent i got into gumroad obviously also took away a little bit of my freedom like i committed a, a few hours of my time every week but i think the the whole arrangement still worked out to be worth it right when taken taken first of all it was still very flexible there's no set times even though sort of we we agreed to do roughly 10 hours a week it's not i'm not tracking time in a spreadsheet or anything it's just is just w- what we agreed to set expectations on. And I still work from whenever I want. It's all asynchronous work. Most of the times there's nobody waiting for me or answering something and I need to reply immediately. So basically it was, I got into an obligation of some sort, but it was still flexible enough for it to work sort of with what I want to do. Yeah, I think this idea of asynchronous work, it definitely allows more agency on, on whoever is taking part in it. Absolutely, yeah. And so you've been called... I had another question in my head that I I can't <laughs> quite... But we'll circle back to it. But you had this... Oh, oh okay. So w- one of the things I was going to mention, it wasn't a question, but just one phrase that I heard that, that I really liked, and I think you'll probably like it too, because it's actually what you do, but it's just called maximizing serendipity. And yeah, it's what... I love it, yeah. Yeah, it's if you read, I don't know, T.S. Eliot, he wrote something as he was about to die in four quartets that that was, it actually drew from Hindu mythology and the Ramayana, but it, it just said the time of death is every moment. And so mm-hmm. if, if you think the time of death is every moment, then you will find sort of the action which will fructify the lives of others. 
And I think that's what maximizing serendipity is about. It's just finding that moment that will fructify the lives of others. Yep. And uh, so I understand what you mean when you say opportunistic, because it's not necessarily yeah. like taking advantage of someone. It's actually, it's a more yeah, exactly. generous sense of the word in terms of finding the way to maybe provide opportunity to other people. And so you're, one of the, the questions I had is that now that you're cultivating this portfolio of small bets, you're pursuing mm-hmm. these these small ideas and you've built a following around it, which is one of the things you mm-hmm. talked about in the how to grow your Twitter audience. And also I'm sure when you think about creating a newsletter as well as that audience is such a massive asset, right? Yeah. In terms yeah. of what you can do with that. If you said you had a newsletter, I'm sure I would sign up immediately, mm-hmm. but I, I'm sure there's a host of other people who would as yeah. well. And I'm wondering about you, you call it a portfolio of small bets. And, and so you pursue mm-hmm. different ideas. And I'm just wondering what the process looks like in terms of, you know, you deciding, which ideas to actually follow through with and pursue Mm -hmm. and to add to your portfolio and how you can judge if something maybe isn't working um, and isn't worth your time. Yeah, I rely a lot on gut feel, to be honest. I'm not a huge believer in the very complicated idea validation processes. I, 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 I believe you can never eliminate uncertainty in business until you put something on the market and you start receiving money, right? And people are satisfied. And you could obviously make try to make better educated guesses, but I rely a lot on on my gut in terms of what's worth pursuing and what is not. Which makes it hard to explain. But I think basically I think what I have tried to cultivate is the understanding of what motivates people to do something, whether it's to buy something or whether it's to subscribe to a newsletter or some or things like that. So it's not easy. And so it's definitely, I, I believe there's still lots for me to learn as well. But I think it's something that I've been intentioned to understand better. And uh, it started by saying to study myself. Sometimes it's very easy for us to fool ourselves thinking creating something cool. I would certainly buy it right, if I was the customer. But then when you think deeply and try to imagine yourself in similar situations, you might realize that you might not actually take out your wallet, you know, to pay $20 for this thing, even though it looks cool. This is, I think this is an important skill to sort of, to hone and to to get better at, right? It's just figuring out what motivates people because it helps you filter out opportunities that are not really viable, at least from a financial perspective, but even for other things, even building an audience, right? It's just, to make somebody follow you, I think it's still also part of realizing what motivates people, even though following is free, gaining a following is not that easy. And to, per- to persuade somebody to click the follow button or to read your, to read your tweet or to read your blog post, it's, it's, it's important to start thinking of what gets people to do certain things. But yeah, going to the back to the point of building an audience, a, a, definitely a huge asset. Probably something that I did. I fe- I feel like I did very well, pretty much immediately. It was something that I intentionally wanted to do. Yeah, no, you <laughs> um, did do it very well. Yeah. Yeah, and and again, like it, there was still lots of exploration. I I knew I wa- basically the way I was thinking about it initially. I, I wasn't even thinking about building an audience. I wanted to get known a little bit. And I, uh, initially, I had no idea how I was going to do it. I, at first, I thought maybe I might create some open source software and my, I might get known for the creator of this thing. Then I started thinking maybe I'll start writing long-form blog posts. I thought that was probably better for me 
And in fact, I did try these things in the first month or two after I left my job. I've created a few open source things, a lot of blog posts. But again, by trial and error, I ended up gravitating to Twitter. It turned out to be my platform of choice. It became a much more natural way for me to share what I'm learning. And I started seeing good sort of engagement. And again, it was, I think it was, again, something that fits very well with my lifestyle. Twitter is something that nowadays... It became so, I became so, so accustomed to as soon as I sense, I see something in front of me that I feel it would interest my audience. I almost instantly, instinctively just tweet about it or take a screenshot and share. I think I got that sense <laughs> calibrated very well. Of, and I do mistakes sometimes. I think that this might be interesting and people don't care, but <laughs> most of the time it's, it turns out to be the case. And yeah, having attention, hugely valuable of, of some sort. I think I wouldn't obsess too much about the follower count or how you do it or what platform you use or whether you do it over an email list or Twitter or YouTube or just having visitors to your blog post. I don't think it matters. I think what matters is the confidence that if you put something out, there's going to be a few people that you're going to find a way to make a few people see what you're doing, right? It's extremely important to not feel like you're relying on rolling the dice or, or relying on somebody else's luck right to to get attention or you having to pay for it right which is <laughs> another way to to get some visibility yeah i it's it's this idea of taking control of what sort of things you decide to pursue and i think in that way Twitter was probably very good for you in that you talked about focusing on intensity over consistency. Oh, this is cool. And you have that serendipitous moment there. Yeah. To, to, I think to build an audience, like you, you have to give people something, right? And that's the key thing. It's literally just, that's what will make people follow you, especially in the beginning. It's, it sounds a bit harsh, but people will only follow you if they believe they're going to get something out of you, whether it's going to be learning something or being entertained or discovering something or getting inspired or something along those lines. I think it's important to think that way, especially in the beginning, to try to figure out what do I have in me that I, or that I'm doing that people will find useful, find interesting, find valuable, and they will want more of them in the future. Mm -hmm. right? And in the beginning for me, it was actually mostly documenting about my transition from full-time employment. I was talking about very mundane things like how I was setting up health insurance and life insurance and getting out some financial preparation things, opening up a business bank account, finding that, creating a logo. I was tweeting about these very basic, almost boring things, mm -hmm. but people found them interesting. Like many people were either thinking of doing something similar themselves, so they're following along, or they knew that eventually they want to do something like this, so they were curious, and they were asking questions, and it was applying immediately, so it builds sort of trust, and they know it's sort of authentic, right? It's just helping mm -hmm. them out. And it was pretty much a year of doing that. All, all of my 2019 was just whatever I was learning or figuring out, I was just trying to find a, a nice way to share it out with everyone and answering lots of questions. I think most of my Twitter, my, my, I think I, I checked like 90% of my tweets are replies to questions I get, not even post to my timeline. Oh, okay. I get like, I get over a hundred nowadays with, with tweet applies and it's pretty much 90% of my <laughs> Twitter, Twitter work. time. What I get is huge, hugely important, right? I think for building an audience. 
It's just you just helping people. And eventually, when you have to ask for something, right, go check out my site, go sign up for my newsletter, go check out my product. You've built this relationship with people that right? you've given a lot and people will go check it out. Some of them will be interested, some might buy, some might subscribe. Right? But I think it's important to build that sort of big budget of giving <laughs> uh, a lot uh, yeah. as much as you can. I'm just realizing that it's unbelievably dark on my side. Yeah, it's that it's the the first thing that you've tweeted about, which is that people you use your real name, they they see you, they understand that the story is real, they trust it. So there's that part of it. Yeah. And I I had a conversation with Blake email. Oh, I might have said his name wrong, but he's a marketer, and I had a conversation with him a while ago, and and he echoed what you said, and that he said people don't care about you; they they care about what you can do for them. Mm-hmm. And at least in the beginning, that I think eventually it changes. People then start liking you and start just following your story. But at least in the very beginning, when you're just unknown, I think it's that what you want to focus on, right? just mm-hmm. what you can give to them. Yeah, when when I think about who I follow and mm-hmm. the way I interact with Twitter is that I don't actually use the Twitter native app. I use Feedbin, and then I just mm-hmm. if something interests me, then I'll pop over to Twitter and I'll comment on something. And right, the people I think about following Paul Graham, Stepan Perusheville, is you, you probably don't know who that is, but Slava Ahmed, people who say things that I, I find interesting and get value out of. And, and you're definitely one of those people. And so I don't think there's anything wrong or that saying that necessarily even presents a, a harsh view of the world. It's just how, yeah. right, it's how a market works. You, yeah succeed by doing valuable things for other people. And I think that's actually a, a good thing. Yeah, and I think some, I think the nice opportunity is that the bar is not that high. There's so much thirst for knowledge. Basically, now with the pandemic, it's hard to see other people. But I remember I used to wait in the line at Starbucks or be on a bus and you just see people scrolling and just basically, this is just people waiting for something interesting to appear on their phone. Right? This is just yeah. all people <laughs> refreshing their feed, waiting for something curious. And there's like, when you think about it, there's like probably millions of people right now just refreshing a page somewhere or scrolling on their phone, waiting for something interesting or useful. And it's just basically a matter of going where those people are, seeing what you have or what you're doing, right? And helping them out, right, basically. It's just giving them something that they know or need. There's lots of things. This is, I think, one of the reasons why my follower count skyrocketed on Twitter was when I was starting sharing my performance results of my info product business, right? It's just um, many people find it inspiring because they never knew you could make six figures out of an ebook mm-hmm. that you've written in a month, right? Or as we're saying, like with a video course that was just very crappy almost but this is like a viable opportunity right. it's just sh- sharing these concrete details the fact that few people do them it's not something that only i am doing but there's definitely a demand for more anecdotal examples of these kinds people want them and i would have loved i would have loved to know more when i was starting and actually i would say i've started probably because i've seen some other people creating uh, sharing some other details like this like they inspired me as well so yeah, I think if you're willing to share and sometimes you're willing are some topics like finances and things like that, which are still a bit taboo, but, and everyone does their own line. For example, I don't share, you know, stuff about my family too much about my, it's just, 
Everyone mm-hmm. does that online. Mm-hmm. But I'm completely, completely fine sharing financial stuff. I share screenshots on my bank right. accounts and tax returns and dashboard data. The more taboo something is, sometimes the more opportunity it gets you to get attention, right? Because the more interest that is, because the less information that is out there about this particular topic, right? So it's, it's interesting right. sometimes to think about it that way. That, yeah, that, I think that is a great thing to think about it. That did stand out to me about you particularly in that it, it makes it feel like it's possible for other people, right? I think, I don't know, people think it might be like a flex or something like that. There's, but, but it's, there's always that risk and there's always going to be people who take it that way, right? But it's sort of, mm-hmm. one of the nice thing about Twitter is that people who feel, who, who, who feel that way tend to unfollow and they just filter themselves out, right? So it's sort of, right, they yeah. self-select, exactly. <laughs> yeah, because for me, it's empowering. I, I'm, wow, yeah. if, if I didn't even know this was possible. And the the whole arc to to change the arc of your life in that way it's very understandable how that narrative stood out to people in a lot of ways and helped you grow that following and also just the fact that you're right a good person who who likes to share information and help people out like you're helping me out right now the last question i ask everyone i talk to is always what what excites you the most about the future whether it's in uh, your own life or some global trend so, interesting question. So, I'm not I'm not the kind of person who thinks much about the future. To be honest, it's not. I don't. I try to do it almost intentionally, not to rely too much about my own ability to predict it. Look, like everyone else, I lo- I enjoy guessing, <laughs> just the act of guessing. But I'm not really, almost intentionally, not really trying to predict some trend and trying to go where that trend is doing or try to anticipate it or things like that. I'm I focus much more on the present opportunities. And I, I, what excites me, to be honest, is mostly the present right, to me. It's just the, the or, or the very near term future. It's, it sounds very vague, but I think what excites me is that I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. That I might wake up, bump into some new opportunity, or or do something interesting, go somewhere exciting. It's this question, like this very sort of, sort of typical question where you get asked, like, where do you see yourself in five years? I think what excites me is that I don't know where I'm going to be in five years, like what I'm going to be doing. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great answer. So yeah, it's very vague, but yeah, I'm not a very, very, I, I, I don't think I'm very good at predicting trends. Like I think there's, there are people that are better at it, just mm-hmm. seeing how people work. And uh, because of that, or probably in addition to that, I try to not rely too much on it. Right? I just focus mm-hmm. on what I have, what I can do, what I like doing. And just try to see opportunities in the near term. <laughs> uh, I think, yeah, I think that's do. great. That's certainly something I'll try to focus on too. What I have, <laughs> what I like doing and, and what I'm doing right now. <laughs> Daniel, thank you so much. I, I, I really appreciate it. I think there's so many lessons that I can certainly take from you, but also write ideas about exploring new ways of being, especially in this 20th century, which is very exciting to me. So thank you. Thank you so much. Awesome, Eddie. Thank you. All right. Take care. Appreciate it. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. Please like, subscribe, tweet, text, and share so that more people can find the podcast. Take care, and we'll see you next time.